After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice cold reward. Medela is the mark of a fighter. You've earned this rich golden lager with a crisp, refreshing taste. Because you know, the bigger the fight, the better the reward. You put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor. You are a fighter, and Medela is your reward. Medela, the mark of a fighter. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Import, Chicago, Illinois. Hey everybody, welcome to another Baseball America podcast. I'm Kyle Glazer. It's been just over a month since baseball and all sports shut down in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Now, as we move into month two of this new reality, we've seen various ideas floated about the ways baseball could potentially return this year. We've seen a plan to have all 30 teams play in Arizona, another plan to have half of teams playing in Florida and the other half in Arizona. There are obviously a lot of potential pratfalls with both plans, but baseball is trying to find ways to come back and putting in the effort to formulate a plan. For today's podcast, we brought in a very special guest to discuss those plans, Dr. Rand McLean. He's a Los Angeles-based doctor who specializes in sports and regenerative medicine. He has more than 35 years of experience in the field. Dr. McLean has been closely tracking the coronavirus and its potential impact on athletes and sports as a whole. Very happy to have him join us today. Dr. McLean, when you first saw the proposed plan first for all 30 teams to be playing in Arizona and then later the second plan to have potentially half of teams in Arizona and half in Florida, what was your reaction to this plan and how feasible it would be to pull these off and most importantly keep everyone healthy? Well, in one word, curiosity, because I I can't fathom how they're going to pull this off, although it can be done, I'm sure. The problem is going to be deciding, you know, to what degree we're willing to take risk because we're not going to eliminate it 100 um, percent. But that's why I've been following this closely, because, you know, it'll, it'll be quite a feat to pull it off. How difficult is it to really, truly contain all these people are talking about? Because the idea of containing, you know, between athletes, umpires, security, coaches, trainers, it can be anywhere from twelve to 1,500 people monitoring their movements, trying to ensure they aren't coming in contact with anyone infected. It sounds like it'd be very, very difficult to pull off from a public health perspective. Just what do you see in that plan and the potential pratfalls and, again, the likelihood it can be pulled off? Well, that's where you get into... Yeah, where, where it's really going to get tough. And where do you draw the line? Because I've seen some numbers, you know, rough numbers about what it's going to take, not just financially, but you mentioned, what, 1,500, maybe 2,000 people. What about the people that come in contact with the players? For example, you start to consider, for example, the hotel personnel, wherever these players are staying at. To what degree are you responsible for them and making sure they're not going to pass the virus uh, to the players or back home to their families and vice versa. So the numbers can get pretty big. And so really we get back to that question as to where you draw the line. Um, we obviously have to implement a lot of testing. And uh, I mean, we can get into that at, at, to whatever degree you'd like, but we do have testing available. And then it's deciding, you know, which tests we're going to use. We're going to use antibody testing and PCR testing. And there are, cost in that how often are you going to test so yeah again getting back to your original question there there's a pretty big number of people involved depending upon how you want to look at it you mentioned the testing and obviously a lot has been written and said about the shortage of available tests in the united states there are efforts underway to close that gap 
if they don't have enough tests, is this possible at all? Because it feels like that's the first step. If you don't have enough tests, none of this matters. I agree. And I think that's where there's a lot of confusion because when you listen to, for example, and I don't mean this derogatorily at all, but when you listen to the politicians tell you about the testing, uh, you'd think that there isn't any. There are uh, tests out there, and I'm not talking about the 599 tests that you know are garbage, or you should think so anyway, Uh, but there are tests that the government may want to use for whatever their reasons are, or there are tests that are covered by the government, etc. There are now uh, tests out there that are validated and are approved under EUA circumstances, emergency youth authorization. But you're hearing more about, for example, Celex or Vecton Dickinson tests because they're bigger names and they are waiting for full FDA approval. Well, you know, in the times we're in today, there's only so much waiting you can do. And again, there are plenty of validated tests out there that are being used. For example, Access Labs is one of the first to be approved in New York City. And if you're a doctor, uh, you can appreciate how hard that is to do because uh, outside of New York, it's very difficult to get approved. I think Access is a Florida lab and New York only lets um, New York labs in. So obviously they've gone under some scrutiny and are now approved. So uh, getting back to your question, there are uh, in place enough uh, capacity and capability to test the players. Uh, the next question is, um, and, and that includes practicality. I don't think it's that difficult. Uh, they can run thousands of tests a day, but at what cost are they willing to pay for it? Because I think you're going to have to test. Are, aren't they trying to uh, play these games day after day? It's going to be a concentrated, compact schedule. So the idea is you're going to have to test daily, if not close to that. That actually leads into my next question. In your medical professional opinion, would you have to test every player every single day to pull this off? I think if they're about to play a game, yes, because the virus, and one of the reasons why this virus is considered so deadly and and so transmissible is because people can be infected in the early stages, for example, roughly five days before they have symptoms. And there's some consensus that that early going is when they're most um, uh, able to transmit the virus. The tighter is the highest. So um, yeah, you're going to have to make sure, and we can do it with two different methods. One of which is to check for the actual virion, the, the virus particle itself or remnants of it. And the other is to check for the body's reaction to it. Uh, antibodies as they're known and to use the combination will help us uh, find out who is infected uh, the most accurately and the most timely so we're going to have to come at it from those two angles and and again I hope that explains why this is such a difficult virus to deal with because there's plenty of people walking around not knowing they're infected not just the ones that eventually become symptomatic with with severe symptoms, the ones we're reading about in ICU, et cetera. But there's some people that just go, you know what, I kind of have a sore throat. Maybe this is because I slept on my back last night and I was snoring. And uh, they're actually infected with the same virus that can make someone else very, very sick, but they don't even feel it, except in a very minor way. Given the asymptomatic nature a lot of people can have, 
when you're talking about baseball, you are talking about some older coaches, some older umpires. You mentioned all the players would have to be tested every day. Does that also include umpires, coaches, really anyone and everyone on the field a test every single day? Absolutely. To be clear, when I yeah, when I'm making reference to that, anyone involved is going to need to be tested on a daily basis. Um, you know, you could look at it as perhaps a little differently for a hotel worker, for example, because if everyone's maintaining the current standard of the social distancing, six feet and wearing masks and whatnot, you might not necessarily uh, have to test those people daily. But with the players, for example, uh, for certainly because they run the risk of uh, running into each other, you know, it's not, not considered a contact sport, but what are you going to do when uh, you're, you're, you're trying to chase down someone trying to steal home, you know, the catcher and the, and the runner or the third baseman, and the runner uh, eventually potentially collide or certainly get within that distance. Those people are at higher risk of transmissibility. So yeah, there's, there's, there's others involved and you'll have to evaluate at what risk they are involved. For example, let's say a trainer, they're not playing on the field. So to use, you know, where you're going with this, a trainer's got to get in contact with these people. They can't maintain six feet distance from a player to treat them. So those those personnel may have to be uh, tested daily as well. In the event someone does test positive, again, whether it's a umpire, player, coach, trainer, anyone, would you recommend that they shut it all down, everyone involved in that clubhouse or potentially both clubhouses is isolated, or could the rest go on and then only you isolate the individual who tested positive? That's a tough one. I think we'd probably have to handle it, but we don't have to do anything, but the the likely way we would consider handling it rationally is the same way we're handling it uh, with all cases in the United States. We try and backtrack to see where there was a possibility of transmission prior to detection and, you know, squash it as best we can. It's a tough call and it's something that, yeah, you bring it up in advance because if we gear up and we go through all this rigmarole to start the season and then three games in, you know, we have an umpire and get it, does that mean we shut it all down? Or, you know, what, what is the best course from there? Again, my opinion would be if we start this, then um, in any event, you'd, you'd, you'd go back and see what you can do um, in retrospect to, to squash the virus transmission or, uh, you know, any further than it's already been transmitted based upon what that, in this case, umpire uh, has been up to, who he's visited, etc. What's the risk of a false negative with the current test? Because that's something that, testing for anything, false negatives are a possibility. Where do we stand with that with the current coronavirus tests available? Well, you've got two different tests. One is what they call an RT-PCR test, which is actually checking for a little piece of the virus, if you will. They magnify it so that they can help uh, determine what it is and there's a what we call a specificity which is referring to uh, the it, whether it's this virus or another okay it's specific to the COVID-19 and there's a sensitivity which refers to um, the ability to uh, identify it and, and we use false positive and false negative amongst those two but um, you know are you going to miss any is it, you know, is it, let's, let's just say, is it right 70% of the time or is it right 95% of the time? That's what this really boils down to in layman's terms. So 
um, each of these tests has their own sensitivity and specificity. So I started out by talking about this RT-PCR test where they're checking for pieces of the virus. There is, as I mentioned earlier, also an antibody test to see how your body has reacted. And that one also has a specificity and sensitivity. Between the two of them, and this goes back into your statistics from back in high school or college, uh, you increase the, again, we'll call it for, for lack of better words, just to make it easy, the accuracy in identifying whether or not a subject has been infected. So roughly speaking, any test that's worth much is going to have an over 90% specificity as well as sensitivity. And again, by using two tests, you can increase that accuracy percentage by even more. Does that make sense? Absolutely. So would it be your recommendation that everyone is given those two tests every day then to increase the accuracy? I think, yeah, your hand would be forced in that direction um, just for the reasons I mentioned. Arguably, uh, well, and I can, yeah, so let me, let me just stop there and say yes. But arguably, once someone has at least one and perhaps preferably two antibody tests that show one particular antibody, it's called an immunoglobulin G or an IgG for short, which reflects having been infected in the relatively distant past. In other words, you are likely no longer carrying the virus, but you now have immunity to it. Once you have one or two positive tests there, you no longer need to be tested, right? Because you cannot be infected any longer. That is the current consensus because while we don't have a for sure answer because coronavirus, uh, this particular one, uh, COVID-2, is new, if it acts like just about every other virus we're aware of, um, it should confer some immunity for at least months, if not a year or more. And we'll find out more about that depending upon what we learn about how this virus can mutate similar to the flu mutating each year and we have to change the vaccine in this case because um, our memory in this antibody form uh, may be there for one type of flu but not for the new one hope that makes sense absolutely virus mutations are something that people are always very very concerned about as you said most commonly with the flu where are we at with that in terms of the coronavirus and what are the risks considered of that that by the time these tests come through or various antivirals are developed or potentially even vaccines, this thing could mutate and we're dealing with an entirely different strain? We don't know the answer to that yet, but we have seen some mutations already in the early going. Uh, as a matter of fact, I don't know if you read recently, but uh, the, the contagion in New York, we think, actually came via uh, Western Europe contrary to our earlier belief, because we can trace the genetics of the virus, okay? And we've found some mutations already, but they're apparently relatively inconsequential thus far. But again, we, we just don't know the answer to that. So at some point along the way, we are going to be taking a, an educated risk. We are gambling a bit, but it's based upon, as I said, educated risk, what we know about the other coronaviruses that we've seen in the past and other viruses in general. There's been some talk about the summertime, maybe the virus dies down a little bit, especially in places like Arizona or Florida where you're dealing with extreme summer heat, albeit a drier heat in Arizona and a more humid heat in Florida. How valid are those assumptions? 
it looks like so far, and this is probably within the last week, um, and I may get this off by a degree or two, but I believe I read 77 degrees can uh, help, certainly help kill the virus, but not outright just kill it. Um, again, I don't know who's taking time out to do these tests or what the differences are in humidity, but we believe at this point that obviously the higher temperatures, higher humidity tend to kill the virus off more quickly when not in a host, obviously, sitting on a plastic wrapper, for example, or on a dinner table or whatnot. Um, so if you, if you wanted to make an argument, I guess you could say Florida would be a better choice than Arizona, but um, I, I think it's probably splitting hairs because if you get to the uh, typical summer temperature in Arizona of somewhere in the 90s or maybe even the 100s, that's killing a virus no matter if it's uh, humid or not. So it seems like we have some data points in favor of, yes, you could pull this off. You mentioned just now the heat, both in Florida and Arizona, potentially killing the virus, making it less of a threat, less of an issue during the baseball season. On the other hand, you've talked about the enormous cost of testing everyone every day unless they test positive for those antibodies, as well as just the difficulties of the logistics of ensuring that 1,200, 1,300, 1,500, 2,000 people of families start becoming involved ensuring that they are really contained within a very strict biodome, so to speak. When you look at the big picture, do you expect baseball can be played and played continuously this summer without interruptions? Well, first part of it, you know, the the idea of having to test every day logistically can be handled. It can be a royal pain in the rear, obviously, but the cost, that's a business decision is, I, I'm, I'm assuming uh, that Major League Baseball, uh, the powers that be, in other words, the people with the pockets have looked into this or certainly are currently looking into it and seeing that the juice is worth the squeeze. Um, but beyond that, yeah, it's more of a, um, uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's certainly way more philosophical uh, questions out there than there are medical questions, at least to my mind. Because, uh, you know, you, you throw in, and I don't mean to go too far afield and reel me back in, but you mentioned the families. Um, yeah, this is, this is a pretty big burden to be separated from your families for uh, several months or to have them included in what, what you call it, a biodome or biosphere and having them have to go through all this regularly too. There's a lot to it, definitely. Um, but it's it certainly, in terms of the testing, it's feasible. Um, and, and the cost of it, that's going to have to be a, a business decision someone up there makes. Do you feel like in the event a player does test positive and they you know, have to take them off the field, that's a situation that can be handled or contained just in terms of medical treatment, ensuring all those who came in contact with him can be isolated? Do you feel like that can be handled? I couldn't tell you for sure because... We haven't been able to handle that here in the United States. We're doing a pretty good job of containment, but I think that's where we're going to have to come down to a weighing of the risks versus benefits. And again, this gets more into a philosophical question. Could I tell you that we could 100% contain it if we identify this one person? I would say, medically speaking, that the chances are much slimmer than they are fatter. Um, but this is where we get into the philosophical point of it. I mean, you could even argue, and, and, and you know, this is not the first conversation probably you or I, I have had about it. 
you know, uh, you could argue that baseball is America's game, and if there's one thing that can uh, can help America right now is to bring a little cheer back into the homes and have some uh, of America's sport on, on the television. I mean, again, we can go pretty far afield here, but, you know, we are human, and, and it doesn't just boil down to cold, hard facts. Uh, if we could pull this off and it worked fairly well, the argument is that, you know, we could really – cheer up a good section of U.S. society anyway by pulling this off. But, yeah, it could also go really wrong. And um, uh, if, if someone's not doing their job and this isn't planned out well enough, uh, a good section of Major League Baseball and um, the admin and those that help them and their families could get sick, that could be a disaster. Absolutely. And that is a risk that I think everyone is trying to weigh here. You know, we're recording this in early April. A lot has obviously changed just in the last month. Everything we're talking about with baseball is another month from now. We've already seen the gains made from March 12th to April 12th. Do you think that potentially by May, when in theory baseball would potentially start to ramp back up, things could be in a good enough place that the risks have gone down significantly? Absolutely. You bring up a great point and something to consider because a month from now, who knows? I mean, there's a lot of pressure now that we're seeing the flattening of the curve, as it's referred to. Uh, we may have opened up considerably by then, whether it's from the president's mouth or the governor's mouth or the mayoral mouths. And Major League Baseball, at that point, a month from now, may be going well above and beyond what the rest of the nation is doing. We just don't know. But it's a great question, and, and it remains to be seen where, where we are in a month from now. Have you been, through your colleagues or medical journals, have you been seeing any progress in terms of the ability of not only the test, but the turnaround times of the test where you can envision in a month from now that we could be in that place? Turnarounds, depending upon the, the type of, uh, we'll call them kits that you're using, the type of testing, can be within 5 to 15 minutes um, with uh, the molecular testing, the PCR testing, and I think as quickly as about one and a half to two hours with the serological testing, the antibody testing. So again, it's, it's going to be feasible to pull it off in medical terms, uh, but the rest of it is, is still open as, as we're talking about. Absolutely. Well, we'll see if it can be pulled off here. Again, we've got a month to six weeks to see what progress is made. And we all hope baseball will be back on the field sooner rather than later and just have to see how it all goes. Dr. McLean, thank you so, so much for joining us. We really, really appreciate your insight today. Hey, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you, sir. Once again, that was Dr. Rand McLean, a doctor who specializes in sports and regenerative medicine, providing some great insight on what the mechanics of testing and isolating would look like in the event baseball returns this year. It's important to remember that the United States as a whole is still in the midst of fighting COVID-19. According to the CDC, the number of cases in the U.S. increased by 25,000 just from Monday to Tuesday. We're still seeing increases in various hotspots around the country. Even as the number of cases are declining elsewhere, it's still a net increase, not a net decrease. Just today, according to ABC News, the director of the CDC warned that the U.S. should be prepared for a second wave of infections in the winter. Historically, we've had pandemics hit multiple waves. It's something both baseball and the general public have to be aware of, especially if baseball's postseason is pushed into November. There's still a lot to figure out and a lot that needs to happen. 
but there are potential plans being formulated to get baseball back in the field, hopefully as safely and as soon as possible. Once again, thanks to Dr. Rand McLean for joining us to what those scenarios might look like. For Dr. McLean, I'm Kyle Glazer. This has been another edition of the Baseball America podcast. Thanks for listening, everybody, and stay safe. Mm-hmm.